and uh, you know you just feel that you'll carry on <laughs> yeah. and you're always reminded that we live in this world with wristwatches I think that's why I don't use a wristwatch you know and you look forward to that place where time is of no essence just worshiping him and we look forward to that in his presence but today we have to stop and just do other things and hear God's word and I'm not the preacher not at all um, it is really a joy for us we part of this church Juliet and I and over the years it's been a wonderful privilege and a joy for us to be members of this church but the organization we serve with is called Africa Inland Mission and when it happened that the international director will be visiting and it worked out that he's going to be speaking here for us it's really a tremendous joy um, but it, it seems to me that we can easily say this is an international service because we've got an international guest from Kenya we've got international missionary from Zimbabwe Juliet and myself are internationals, and maybe there will be some, so we can easily say this is an international service. You know, we've got Luke and Jenny are internationals, and we, it, it, you know, it's, 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 it's really wonderful to be in a church that internationals feel welcome. And I can say that about Connect Church, and I wouldn't be lying. You know, when Luke wanted to know what's the church like, I wanted to say it's a perfect church. <laughs> you know, I would be lying if I say that. But I won't be lying if I say it's a welcoming church. It's a church where internationals feel welcome, and that's really great. And so for us, it's a joy that Luke is here. Herod uh, is here. He leads the South African office, and really wonderful that Herod, you're welcome to our home. This is our home church. You know, I, I feel proud to identify with this church. And so uh, Luke and his wife uh, have two daughters, and they have a grandson. And they've worked predominantly in Muslim countries, some places that in the missionary circles we call creative access countries for over 18 years. Uh, he is a medical doctor and his wife is a qualified nurse, school teacher, uniquely gifted to do what they do. They can get anywhere, they can do anything anywhere. Uh, but then, I don't know, sometimes they get kicked out as well. Call <laughs> all comes in the mix. All right, I'm going to stop talking uh, and allow Luke to speak to us what God has placed on his heart this morning. Um, not before telling you that as the international director, what that means is that on their shoulder lay the weight of over a thousand missionaries in over 20 countries for them to pray and strategize along with other leaders and make sure that this organization that is over 100 years keep going forward. Um, so you can pray for them. If they, they, they don't look like they're under any strain, but they're carrying a lot of spiritual burden. So Luke, can you please come forward so that we can pray for you, uh, and then you can bring God's word today. Thank you. Can we together pray for Luke today? Uh, Lord, we just lift up Luke before you as he stands to bring your word. Uh, we know that you have placed a word on his heart. We ask that you will give him clarity. We ask that you will strengthen him. And we ask that your spirit will be at work as he speaks today. And that at the end of it all, you will be glorified. 
Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Welcome. Well, that's quite an introduction. I think you're expecting maybe John the Baptist or the Apostle Paul here. Um, after that, um, I, I thought as uh, Jacob was talking about the weight of a thousand missionaries on my shoulders, uh, if you look at our South Africa director, Gerard, here, even him on my shoulder would squash me. So I <laughs> prefer that, yeah, I not have to carry all that weight. Uh, wow. Yeah, I also was struck that he said, well, now we have to stop this wonderful time of worship and listen to Luke. I, I don't know. This is not starting well. All right. Yes, my name is Luke. My wife Jenny is here with me. Um, our, our, our South African board chair, uh, Tim Pinar, and his wife are also here. Yes, thank you. How nice to see you. Um, I, I really enjoyed that worship team. Thanks so much. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not about, uh, oh, international director, big time, international. Who cares, right? It, uh, it's not about that. It's about Jesus. Um, and it, yeah, wonderful to worship Jesus here with you today. So, and Jacob said this is an international. Yeah, I think you're all internationals. To me, you're all internationals, right? <laughs> yeah. We worked in, in three Muslim countries in East Africa for about 20 years. Um, can you just flip a couple pictures there? There we are. That's my friend Abdallah uh, from, and his wife Raudwia from Comoro Islands. Um, Comoros uh, is probably known to some of you. Uh, it was a holiday destination for a lot of South Africans for a while. And one of the few places that pre-1993 that South African missionaries could easily go to in Africa. So we had a bunch of people there. Um, Abdallah was a nurse, at the, or still is a nurse, at the hospital where I worked in Comoro Islands. And as we got to know each other, he just approached me and said, I'd like to know about your faith, and I'd like to know what your Bible says. So we just started reading the Word of God every week, starting in Genesis chapter 1, moving through the Old Testament. We skipped over a few places, you might imagine. But somewhere in that two to three years that we did this and moved into the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles, Abdallah came to faith. Um, his wife followed afterward, and his children followed afterward. And it's just really a testimony to the power of the Word of God. Muslims in particular respect the written word of God, and, and that was powerful to Abdallah. Um, Abdallah is still faithful, uh, inviting people into his home, sharing his faith with people in Comoro Islands. There are many Comorians who believe in Jesus now, and there are people all over the Muslim world who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, next slide, please. One more. There we are. This is the country of Djibouti, funny little country up on the Horn of Africa. Um, we live not far from a railroad tracks, and there were a lot of squatters living along there. They were mostly Somali people, but some others. Um, and we had an outreach to them. We started with a clinic out there, and that's my wife in the middle. She's a nurse um, with some of the people we were seeing. Um, we did that for two or three weeks. Afterwards, we said, 
why don't you come to our house? We invited them to come and watch the Jesus film and have, a, and have a meal. A bunch came, and they came the next week, and the next week, and the next week, and they kept coming for three years. And on a pretty regular basis, we'd have 30 Somali women and 20 children at our house uh, for, to hear the Word of God. Uh, the Lord blessed that ministry, and a bunch of those people came to faith. I invited a lot of my patients, too, particularly the HIV patients that I was taking care of. Um, and a bunch of them came to faith, too. That was a real blessing, because those were people who were getting close to death. And with medical treatment and modern HIV medications, it's like the Lord gave them a few years where they could come to faith, start walking with him before he took them. Most of them are in heaven, if not all of them. We wait for the day when we'll see them again. Go back one slide. After Djibouti, we went to another country on the Horn of Africa uh, that I, I won't say the name just because it could get some people into trouble. Um, but again, these are Somali people. I like this picture. That's in our living room, and those people are watching the Jesus film again. What we did here is, I, again, I worked in a hospital, and I had a group of, of young women that I was, I was taking care of, and they had very serious diseases heart disease, bad diabetes, uh, HIV. It's recognized a lot of these women are going to die in the next year or two. We need to find a way to share the gospel with them. Um, very difficult to do in the clinic for a number of reasons. Um, so we thought, well, let's invite them over. So I told them on a certain day, my wife is going to come here with our van. We'll pick you up, bring you to our home. We'll have a meal together, and we'll watch this Jesus film in Somali again. Um, you can bring your mother, and you can bring your oldest daughter. Um, we don't want boys. Boys are trouble, yeah. But there's, you see there's a couple boys in that picture. They disobeyed us and brought the boys anyway. Um, well, they loved it. And they said, can we come back next week? I said, okay. So that's what we started doing every week. And by that time, we spoke Somali language a little bit better, and we could share the Word of God in, in Somali with them. That went on for a couple years, and the Lord blessed us. And more women came, and the Lord brought some of those women into his kingdom as well. Um, people started watching us. The police were watching us. Uh, one day, I, I got called into the police uh, department, and they informed me that uh, I had three days to leave the country. Um, so we left. We didn't have much choice in it. But the work goes on, and there are people coming to faith in this country, and again, all over the world, among Muslim peoples. Yeah. Um, since then, I'm in the international leadership of AIM, and our office is in Bristol, England. We live in California, where we're from. Um, which is kind of the, uh, the Western Cape of the United States, uh, very similar um, if you've been over there to visit. Um, AIM, Africa Inland Mission, we're 125-year-olds as an organization. We have about 1,000 people working with us, and we work in 23 different African countries and the African diaspora, Africans spread all over the world. What we want to do is mainly three things. We want to do direct engagement with African unreached people groups, church planning among African unreached people groups. Okay, that's one. Number two, mobilizing African missionaries. And number three, helping to train African church leaders. Yeah. Just a word about unreached people groups in Africa. Can you go back one slide? 
There we are. Okay. A lot of people in my country, um, North America, we think that, well, mission work in Africa is done. Um, and in one sense, it is. It's been hugely successful. One of the huge success stories of the modern mission movement has been what the Lord has done in sub-Saharan African countries. And, and in every sub-Saharan African country, there are large and vibrant and growing African churches. And so, yes, praise the Lord for what he's done. Um, but you look at this map, and the green dots, those are all people groups who are reached with the gospel. The red dots, those are people groups that yet to be reached with the gospel. And you can see where they are all along North Africa. Okay, 90 million Arabs and Berbers up there, 100 million Egyptians, most of whom who do not have the gospel. Across Central Africa, that Sahel area, many, many people groups there. Think of 40 million Fulani people spread across that Central African belt with very little gospel. And then over there into West Africa, uh, countries like Guinea, Senegal, Mali, Niger, where still overwhelmingly Muslim countries with a very small Christian presence. Okay. There's about 350 million people in these people groups with little or no access to the gospel. About 1,000 people groups, those red dots. Okay. And about half of those are not only unenreached, they are what we call unengaged, meaning they have no missionary work among them, almost no chance to hear the gospel. So, yes, we praise God for all those green dots, but we recognize there's still lots of work to be done more toward the north and toward the west. Just leave that map up there. We'll keep our eyes on it, but... Last thing I'll say before I start, before I go to the scripture, is that typically when we have mission sermons, or maybe almost any sermon, we tend to apply them to ourselves. We think about, what is the Lord saying to me? Uh, what does the Lord want me to do? That's good. That's not a problem. Um, but today I'd like us to think not just about that individual dimension, but to think about what does he have for us as a church? What does he have for this church body in terms of mission and local outreach? So try to apply everything I say to you as a church body. I'm going to pray and then we'll go to the scripture. Father God, please help me to honor Jesus Christ as I speak and to encourage and challenge my brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name, amen. The text is John chapter 4, verses 27 through 38. We all know the story in John 4. This is Jesus and the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. Um, I expect if you've been in church very long, you've heard sermons about this already. Um, I'm not going to talk about the woman at the well so much, but I'm talking about the second part of it, that is Jesus' interaction with his disciples after the woman talks with Jesus and runs off to the town to tell people about him. Okay, then Jesus' disciples who are off getting food, they come back and they meet Jesus talking with this woman. So we'll take it from there. What I'll do is I won't read the whole text, but I'll just read one verse at a time, and then I'll try and 
make one comment about each verse. There's a lot more to say, but I'll try and stick with that. And then in the end, there's three general points I'll make about the whole message. Okay, so one point from each verse and then three points to sum up. Verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Here's the simple point. Jesus does surprising and unexpected things. Nobody expected Jesus to be doing that. He refuses to fit into our little boxes, whether they're national or racial or sometimes theological. The disciples were wise enough not to challenge Jesus about that. May we as a church be just as wise when Jesus does unexpected and surprising things in our lives and in this church community, because he will. Jesus does unexpected things. Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, well, the verse stops there. Here's this woman. We don't even know her name, right? She doesn't even get a name in the scripture. Yeah, we'll meet her someday, right? Looking forward to that day. She can tell us the whole story about what happened at the well. Um, but she goes from hearing to talking almost instantly. Yeah, she became more or less an instant evangelist. This woman, as far as I can tell, was an evangelist before she was even a true believer. She didn't really understand who Jesus was, and yet she went to proclaim the truth. Now, there's a real principle there and that helps us in movements of the gospel around the world. That is that people can begin to proclaim the truth before they're even saved. People can share what they know. When we were in Comoro Islands, we'd meet these young men who were reading the Word of God, and they were so excited about it, and they wanted to go tell everyone, I'm a Christian, and here's about Jesus. And we'd say, okay, slow down a little bit. Say, please do that. Please do share what you are learning, just like this woman is doing. But please don't identify as a Christian until you are really ready to do that. You are Muslims. This is a Muslim country. Until you are really ready to follow Jesus, then fine. Then you can change your identity, baptize you, etc., etc. But in the meantime, you're still a Muslim. But tell people what you're learning. Again, the gospel can spread rapidly that way with people who are new and excited, and plus they are immersed in a non-Christian world. This is the way the gospel can spread in this community as well. Yeah. People who are new to the faith or who are seekers, they're excited, and they have many opportunities. Think about how many opportunities you have. If, you are, if you've been a Christian for a long time, you tend to have fewer and fewer opportunities because you get immersed more or less in a Christian world, and it gets harder and harder to share the gospel. Think of myself as a mission director. I really have to work to find non-believers around me. I mean, I have to really go out and find them. Pity the poor guy who sits next to me on the airplane. He's going to hear something. Yeah. Yeah, yesterday I, had, I, I sat next to, you know, two flights, two different people, and they, they were both Christians too. Then I thought, oh, I got an Uber driver. Well, there's another Christian. It's like, okay. 
Bless them. We have nice fellowship anyway. But, um, yeah, here's the point. New people, whether converted or unconverted, can be some of the best witnesses, just like this woman was. Verse 29, here's what she says. Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Yeah. This woman, her, her experience is much more convincing than her theology. Nobody can argue with her. Yeah. The same is true for us. Now, we need good theology and we need good apologetics if we're going to explain our faith to the world. Um, but more than that, we need experience of Jesus Christ. Individually and collectively as a church, Nat can speak louder than any theology or arguments to our friends, our neighbors. Her message is very simple. Come and see. <clears throat> I don't necessarily understand it, but come and see. Something is happening. Even to someone who might not understand anything about Jesus or understand or believe, we can say that same message. Just come and see for yourself. If we have that experience of Christ, we can share it just like this woman did. Simple message, come and see. Verse 30, they went out of the town and were coming to him. Okay, this woman tells everybody and people say, well, we want to see. So they start coming. It's amazing that all these people came. Considering what the woman's testimony was, come and see the man who told me everything about myself, particularly about all my sinful past relationships. I'm not sure I'd want to go see somebody who knew everything about me. Um, it's kind of awkward. But compelled by this woman's experience, they come. And as Jesus is standing there talking with his disciples, they can look out and see, here come all these Samaritans coming towards them. And that sets the scene for his discussion with the, with the disciples. Verse 31, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. The disciples are thinking about food. Yeah. Eat, take care of yourself. Normal thinking. They've had a long trip, and Jesus is tired. They want him to eat. Everybody needs to eat. The famous Italian tenor, Luciano Pavarotti, um, he said once, one of the wonderful things about life is no matter what we're doing, we have to stop every few hours and have something to eat. Now, if you've seen pictures of Pavarotti, maybe, maybe he stopped a little bit too often. Um, but we do need to eat. But are we more concerned sometimes for our physical needs or our education and our career and our family and our house and our retirement? Are we more concerned with these things than we are with the work of God as a church? Are there ways that we end up doing the same thing, focusing our own needs on our own needs and forgetting about the lost, whether they're in the community around us or whether they're perishing and needy people in places like Mali and Guinea and Madagascar that have minimal or no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ? The harvest is ready. Jesus says, and here it is, it's coming to us. Is it time to eat and drink and worry so much about the things of this life? Verse 32, but he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. 
I have food to eat that you do not know about. Here's a simple application. Jesus always has something that we do not know about. Jesus always has a whole bunch of things that we don't know about. To the disciples, the need for food was an obvious thing. But there's a whole dimension of spiritual life here that's going on here that the disciples are completely clueless about. Yeah. How often is this true for us, whether as individuals or as a church, we're going on with our lives, eating and drinking, running our programs, this and that, but there's a whole dimension of things going on that we are really completely unaware of. What might we as a church be missing that he's doing, whether amongst us or around us or in the wider world? What are we missing? Verse 33, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? The, the disciples are doing something nice. They're serving their master. They think he really needs them and their food. But let's not forget that he really does not need our service. Yeah. He's pleased with our service. He invites us into his service, but he does not depend on our service. Uh, in mission and in the kingdom of God, his army is vast. He wants us to join his army. He invites us into his army, but he has many, many, many soldiers. If we do not obey his call to us, he will send others. If we as AIM fail to listen to him or fail to obey him, if you as Connect Church fail in the same way, the kingdom of God will go on. He has other people he will call and invite, but it's us who miss the blessing of participating in what he's doing. Yeah. He will accomplish the Father's will. Again, it's a blessing that we receive, his calling and invitation to participate. And what a blessing this is. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's a key sentence. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now Jesus tells us what this food is that he's been referring to. It's about doing the will of God. That's the food of Jesus, doing the will of God. Now, what is this will? In this particular setting in John chapter 4, the will of God is for Jesus to preach the gospel and to bring lost sinners into his kingdom. That's the will of God that he's talking about. And Jesus loves to do this. He loves to bring lost people into his kingdom. It is more precious to him than food. Think about yourself as an individual for a minute. You are so precious to Jesus. It was so precious for Jesus to bring you into his kingdom and make you part of his church. So precious. It was so precious for him to establish this church. He loves this church, and he loves each one of us so much. This is more important to him than food. Uh, 
I don't know about you, but I really, really love food. I fast because I'm a Christian. I, I fast. But I think about food all day when I fast. I, I don't have this experience where people say, oh, you just forget about food and you just pray all day. It's like, oh, I pray, but I think about food. I love food. I really love burvurs. I love that. It's really good. Food is one of the most important things in my life, honestly. After, after oxygen and water, and pretty much all of us can get oxygen and water, what is more important to us than food? But your soul and the soul of those lost Somalis and Arabs and Malagasy's and Guineans and Asians and Americans and South Africans, these are a thousand times more important to Jesus than even the best meals. One more thing. The statement was that Jesus does the will of God and accomplishes his work. My work is to do the will of God and to accomplish his work. So it's not just that he strives to accomplish the will of God. He accomplishes the work of God. It will be done if Jesus undertakes it. John 10, 16, he said, I have other sheep that are not of this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. There will be one flock and one shepherd. See all those wills? He will bring the lost sheep. They will hear his voice. There will be one flock with one shepherd. Jesus does the will and accomplishes the work of his heavenly Father. Verse 35, do you not say, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Okay, four months to the harvest. I don't know if that was just kind of their cycle of planting and reaping. There was typically four months between, or if it was the actual situation at the time that uh, Jesus was uh, in the Samaritan village, that it was four months until the harvest. Uh, doesn't matter. Um, the point is, it's normal. There's sowing, and then there's waiting, and then there's reaping. Uh, but Jesus is saying, you don't have to wait long. Look, and he can point out to all these Samaritans coming toward them, the harvest is here. The harvest is coming. You can get involved in it right now. You're not going to have to wait. It may be an unexpected harvest. But here it comes. Here it comes. Immigrants are coming to your country and to my country from all over the world. Politically, socioeconomically, this may be an issue for us. Spiritually, it's not. Spiritually, we know who is bringing people to us. And we know why he is bringing people to us, so they can hear the gospel. I love to tell British people. I love to say, who brought... Who brought all these people here? Yeah, the Lord brought these people. Yeah, they had their own reasons for coming. I get that. But the Lord is the one who's moving people around the world for the sake of the kingdom of God. Is immigrants are coming here all over the world. Muslims are coming into the kingdom of God. It's an unexpected harvest. You know, all the biggest churches in London, they're African churches. Same thing in Paris. Yeah, 
A lot of European cities. Someone said in the UK, we prayed for revival. And we didn't recognize it when it came because its face was black. <laughs> Quite a statement, isn't it? Unexpected harvest. What is the harvest that the Lord has for this church to participate in? Maybe it's an unexpected harvest. Maybe it's something right on your doorstep. Maybe it's something in West Africa. Maybe it's something in Madagascar. Maybe it's all three. What is the harvest he has for you? Verse 36, already the one who weeps, weeps, is who reaps, is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. What rewards he offers to us as a church, both on this earth and in heaven. Gathering fruit for eternal life, receiving wages, joy together with the other laborers. What is better than this? Sometime when I was engaged in Comoros or Djibouti or one of these places, I just have this feeling. You'd be sitting there with local believers or seekers teaching the Word of God, and sometimes the mosque calls going on outside, and we're surrounded outside with all these Muslims, and we're hidden in this little place and, and sharing the Word of God. And I would just think, what is better than this? What is better? Especially when, when we could do it in Somali language. Ah, that was just an incredible, unspeakable privilege to be able to share the gospel. I think, what is better than this? I can't think of too many things on this earth that are better than that privilege. And fine, you don't have to do it in another language. You don't have to do it in another country. That same privilege is available to all of us. And again, it's not, I don't want you to feel like it's a burden. It's a privilege the Lord gives us to enter into his harvest fields. What special mission privileges might the Lord Jesus be offering to this church? The harvest and the glory, they belong to the master. But the rewards and privileges, they're for us. Verse 37. Here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. This is still true, one sows and another reaps. In AIM, there are places where we are sowing and the soil is hard and the harvest is minimal. There are places where we're reaping and there's all kinds of wonderful stories. Okay doesn't matter. There's no reaping without sowing. Yeah. And the Lord calls people into particular roles in his harvest. Uh, so, for the people who are called to be reapers, they're the ones who get to tell the great stories. The people who sow, they have far fewer stories. Again, doesn't matter. Yeah. It, um, all of us are called to be faithful, though some will be more fruitful than others. Uh, one sows, another reaps. There's no place for pride or jealousy. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Uh, finally, verse 38, I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. What is he talking about with the disciples? He's probably talking about Old Testament writers and prophets and John the Baptist and people like that, and you get to reap the fruit of their labor. And for us, it's the same people, but we have all the New Testament writers and 2,000 years of witness. Yeah, 
people who have sowed, and we get the privilege of entering into the harvest based on their labor. Um, but here's what I want to emphasize. Jesus sent the disciples into the harvest, uh, and Jesus still sends workers, individuals, and churches into his harvest fields. So again, ask yourself, where might he be sending me? And for us as a church, where is he sending us? Three summary points. Our roles, our mission, and our food. Our roles. What's the role of the disciples here? John chapter 4. It's early days for them. This is not Acts chapter 2. This is John chapter 4. They are learners, disciples. That's what they're doing. And that's fine for the time being. Jesus doesn't condemn these disciples for not understanding. He doesn't condemn us either. It's good to be a learner. What are you? Are you a missionary or an evangelist like the woman? Are you a learner or a disciple? Either one is a good place to be. The question is, how do we move from learning and listening to proclaiming the gospel? Do we need more theological education? Do we need more missions training? Those are good things, and maybe we need them. But more than that, we need experience Jesus Christ individually and as a church. We need to experience him. This woman had real experience, and she went straight off to share it. She couldn't not share the gospel. That's what I want for myself. That's what I want for all of us, that our experience with Jesus is so powerful that we cannot not share the gospel. It just flows out of us. Yeah. Think about other things in our identity you as South Africans, me as an American. Uh, everybody knows I'm an American. The way I talk, the way I act, the way I think, the way I dress, the way I look, it's not hard for people to say, that's an American. Okay, that's fine, it's not a problem. I'd rather have everybody see and recognize that's someone who's been with Jesus. That's a Christian. It's so much a part of him, it just flows out of him. How do we need to experience Jesus? What does this church need to experience of Jesus? I think of those seven letters that are written to the churches in Revelation. Um, if you read through those letters, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, there are seven of them, right? Two of them, they're only, they're only favorable. Philadelphia and Smyrna only says good and affirming things. One is all bad. That's Laodicea. Sardis is pretty bad, too. The others are a mixed bag. But every letter starts out with, I know. Every single letter, I know. He knows everything about those churches. He knows everything about this church. What is the letter, if Jesus was going to write a letter to connect church, what is the letter that he would write? Something to think about. What is the letter that he would write to this church? Let's ask him. Let's seek him. He loves us so. He wants us to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, to the ends of the earth. Let's listen and obey him. 
our roles, our mission. Let's talk about mission in the same breath. Talk about local outreach. They're two sides of the same coin. Not so much about the what, but about the why. Why send missionaries? Why share the gospel with your neighbors and friends? Why reach out to the community? Here in John chapter 5, there's at least five reasons that I've already said, but I'll say them again. Number one, because it's the Father's will for the lost to hear the gospel and to come into the kingdom. Number one. Number two, because we've experienced his love his touch, his rebuke, his forgiveness, his call. We've experienced Jesus. Number three, because the fields are white for harvest. Number four, because there are wages, fruit and joy for all eternity. Privileges and blessings for those who participate. And finally, because, number five, he will accomplish the work of his Father. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. The lost sheep will hear, they will come, they will be joined to his church. He will build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Finally, our food. What is your food? What do you live for? Is your food just food? Or is it sports, computer games, wine, sex, money, politics, nationalism, your house, your car, your health, your family, your financial security, your retirement package? What is, the what is your food here at this church? What do we need? What do we love? What do we seek? Do we seek the same food as Jesus? Or are we eating some kind of junk food? Is our food doing and accomplishing the will of God? Especially in this case, sharing the gospel with lost people. What are we eating? Scripture invites us to taste and see that the Lord is good. His will is good. His work is good. If you doubt what I say, you think, yeah, I think the missionary's right, but that's not always my experience. Well, I'll, I'll confess it's not always my experience either, and I have my own junk food that I eat. Um, but to all of us, Jesus invites us to come sit at his feet, eat at his table, take his yoke and learn from him, join him in his work. He invites us into missions and evangelism in South Africa and further afield, as a church and as individuals. It is the privilege he offers us. This is food to Jesus. It is food for his people. It can be your food, too. I'd like us to all stand up. Often... When you have mission services, you have some kind of call. Who will commit themselves to missions? Who will go? But I want you to think about this again as a church. Yeah. I want us all to ask him, what will you do with us? What will you do with this church? Can we individually and corporately ask him to use us in new and powerful ways? 
He has blessed you and used you in many ways already, I know. But let's ask him what he will do now. Just invite us. Be silent for a minute. Ask the Lord if anybody wants to speak out or if you want to do it like in some other places and everyone prays at the same time. I don't know what your tradition here is, but let's be free and let's seek the Lord and I'll close after a minute.